Well, amen. Uh, thank you, Brendan, and thank you to all those who have been leading in the service so far. We praise the Lord that we can worship him together. You might notice that I'm in a bit of a different background this morning. Hope that doesn't distract you too much, but hey, at least I'm not going to blend in the background as much as I do with the with the white background anyway. So hopefully that won't be a distraction to you this morning. I want What I want you to do is grab your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 22 and this morning we're going to walk through that passage together and believe me you are going to need your bibles with you so 1 peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 22 and as you're getting that um chapter ready and together i want you to think this morning about these phone calls that we keep getting nowadays your phone it rings And you go over and you go to pick up your phone and you realize it's not just a normal call where you hold the phone up to your ear. You pick up the phone and you realize it is a video call. So what you do is you you look at the, you know, little green camera flashing and you you swipe it up and, and then you get two boxes that come up onto your screen. The first box is, of course, the big box in the screen. And then the second box is a small little box in the corner. The big box has your loved one. The small box in the corner has you. Now, here's my question this morning. Which box do you tend to look at first? Now, be honest. <laughs> when you get a video call and you have two boxes on the screen, there's the small box in the, in the bottom right corner, and then there is, is the big box. Which one do you tend to look at first? Or you're looking back at photos from from the past, maybe wedding photos or whatever, and you see a photo of your family and you're there in it and you're standing on the right hand corner and you're looking at all the people. Which person do you tend to look at first? I'm not sure if it's just me. (laughs) I hope it's not just me. But I think when we get these video calls in, we tend to focus first on the little box in the corner upon us and I think that's what happens to us in our sufferings in our trials and our tribulations in our heartaches the phone of suffering rings in our lives and we pick it up and we tend to only focus on the small box in the corner with ourselves there that's what trials do that's what difficulties do that's what suffering does it, it makes us in some ways, focus in upon ourselves. But for the Christian, for the Christian, the biggest box in our life, the biggest person in our life is to be the person of Jesus Christ. And you see, if our focus is always on our own suffering and ourselves, it is going to feel like we are losing all the time. But what God wants to do this morning through this passage is get us to look at the big picture, not our suffering, but the suffering of Jesus Christ. And when we take our eyes off of our suffering and look upon his suffering, it is not going to feel like we are losing. We are then going to see the victory that we have in Christ. And that's what I believe God wants you to see this morning. And not just closed in on your own suffering, but see the bigger picture and the suffering of Jesus Christ and the victory that he brought to you. 
And so that's what we want to see firstly this morning is the victory of Christ through his suffering. Look firstly at verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 it says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what happened with Jesus Christ. It says there in verse 18, for Christ also suffered. This is what you need to remember. You are not alone in your suffering. Peter wants us to take our eyes off the small picture and look at the bigger picture. Christ also suffered. And when Christ suffered, that brought you and I victory. Christ's suffering wasn't just an example uh, to us. It was suffering that happened for us. And in Christ's suffering, you and I have great victory. And you and I can have great encouragement from that, even while we are suffering in this earth. And we see that in two ways from verse 18. Christ's victory through his suffering, we see that in in two ways. First, his suffering, Christ's suffering, brings us to God. His suffering gets us to God. Do you see it in verse 18? For Christ also suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. His suffering brings us to God. Many religions, they have many different ideas of what brings us to God. How do we get to God? And so the Muslim might have, you know, um, five different prayers that they can pray in order to get themselves to God and communicate with God. The Catholic might have the rosary, maybe ten Hail Marys and and one Our Father. and, And that might be a way to get to God, to get connected to God. The Jew might have three prayers throughout the day, morning, afternoon, and evening, and that might be a way of connecting to God. And you'll notice that each of those religions had numbers attached, five prayers, ten prayers, one prayer, three prayers, all trying to find the right formula in order to get themselves to God. But Christianity has only one number that matters. It is one. Christ died once for sins. That's what this text tells us. Christ died once for sins. That means you don't need to come up with the right equation. You don't need to come up with the right number of prayers or 20 actions or 50 kind words or any of this. You don't need to do a maths equation in order to get to God. It is not about your actions. It is about his once for all action. And that once for all suffering of Jesus Christ is how we get to God. Through his suffering, we are brought close to God once for all. In the Old Testament, they had many sacrifices day after day after day after day. We're told in Jesus Christ, only one action is needed. is suffering for us upon the cross. And that brings us to God. And when you are suffering and when you are tempted to look upon that small screen, that small box in the corner, 
Remember the bigger picture that Christ suffered once for your sins to bring you to God. The second way we see Christ's uh, victory in his suffering is not only does it bring us to God, but his suffering makes us right with God. His suffering makes us right with God. When you look at all the suffering in this world, you will come to one conclusion again and again and again and again. And that conclusion that you will come to again and again is this. Suffering is wrong. When you look at cancer, don't you say that is wrong? When you look at miscarriages, don't you say that is wrong? When you look at the persecution of the church today and and the suffering that Peter is talking into, the persecution of the church, do you not conclude that that is wrong? Suffering is wrong. How much more so that the Savior of the world, who committed no sin in thought and in word and in deed, suffered upon the cross. To which you should say, that was wrong. But that wrong was done to make you and I right before God. The righteous for the unrighteous. It seems so wrong. And yet, by grace, we have someone who died in our place and achieved the victory for us. In our lives, in your life, you probably feel like again and again and again, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm wrong in my thoughts, I'm wrong in my words, I'm wrong in my deeds, I'm wrong. Praise God, through Jesus Christ. You are declared right. You are declared righteous before him. And this is the victory that his suffering achieved. His suffering brings us to God and his suffering makes us right with God. And so we see Christ's victory in his suffering. The second thing we see in this passage is not only his victory in his suffering, but we see Christ's victory in his proclamation. Christ's victory in his preaching. Christ's victory in his declaration. And when you look at this proclamation in these next couple of verses, here's the thing. There's a lot of debate about the proclamation. These are strange verses that we are going to look at right now. And there's a lot of debate about the proclamation. How did how did Christ make the proclamation? What was the proclamation? Where did he make the proclamation? Who did he make the proclamation to? And there's loads and loads of different answers that people have come up with. It's it's quite inventive, really. I want you to hear before I read to you these strange verses, I want you to hear what Martin Luther says about these verses. Listen to what he says. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that, listen to what he says, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) That gave me great encouragement this week. Because if he doesn't know what he means, I don't know what he means either. Not fully. I have my ideas, I have my thoughts. 
I read some of my favorite theologians during the week, and four of them had four different views on this passage about what this proclamation looks like. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read these strange verses. Then I'm going to tell you a strange story. Then we're going to think about what these strange verses mean. And then our focus is going to be on the victory. Because I think that's why Peter's writing here. He's not writing to get Christians to focus on the controversy. He's writing to encourage Christians to focus on the victory. So let me read it to you and see if you can find out what it means. (laughs) And if you know, please text me. That would be great help for me. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 18. This is about Christ being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now those are strange verses. Now, we will get to the victory. We will get to the proclamation. We will get to what everybody agrees on. But before we get there, let me help you with these strange verses by telling you a strange story. It begins way back in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, 7 and 8, we have the story of the flood. And you say, oh, well, is the story of the flood the strange story? No, that's not the strange story. The strange story is not that water flooded the earth. The strange story of the flood actually happens before the flood. In Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. Before the flood, you have these people. They are called the sons of God. And these sons of God, here's the strange part. These sons of God, they come and they sleep with the the daughters of men. And then these sons of God and these daughters of men, they have children. And some think that these children that they had were these guys called the Nephilim. And the Nephilim may have been giants. And so then you kind of think, well, there is something strange going on here. And then you start to ask the question, well, who are these sons of God? Different people have different views, of course. It is a strange story. So when there's strange stories, there's strange opinions. But it seems to me there's four other times in the Bible it talks about these sons of God. Four other times. In Job 1, Job 2, Job 38 and Daniel 3. And each time it talks about these sons of God that appear in Genesis 6. Each time it talks about the sons of God, it is talking about angels. And so that is where the story gets strange. The sons of God, meaning the angels, meaning the evil spirits, came down and slept with the women of the earth. They had children, they had babies, and God saw the wickedness of the earth, not just in the fallen angels' actions, but in the people's actions. And God saw the wickedness of the earth, and he judged the earth, and he flooded the earth. As a punishment for what was going on. And so that is how the earth was punished. But then the question is, well, what happened to these sons of God? 
That's where we get into our strange verses. These sons of God, they disobeyed at the time of Noah. And in Jude, in Jude 6, verse 6 and 7, we hear of these fallen angels who sinned in and around the time of Genesis. And as a punishment for that sin, they were chained for eternity in hell. And then in 2 Peter, chapter 2, we hear of these fallen angels who as a punishment for what they did in and around the time of Genesis, were chained and suffered a punishment of eternity in hell. And so we have in this passage, in these verses, we have spirits in prison, and they were in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So who are these spirits? They are the sons of God who slept with the women of men and who got the punishment of being put in a prison for eternity. And that prison is hell. And so that helps us in terms of figuring out what are these strange verses about? Because you start to ask, well, who are the spirits? What is the prison? And why were they put there? Well, they are the fallen angels. They were put in hell and they were put there because of what they did with the women of men. Now, that's the wrong focus, I think. The focus should not be upon what these fallen angels did or what these spirits did in the time of Noah. The focus should be upon what Christ did and what Christ spoke and what Christ proclaimed. And here we have it. At the end of verse 18, it says, being put to death in the flesh, that is put to death in the body, he was made alive in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Jesus was put to death. And after he was put to death, he was made alive. He rose from the dead. And when he was made alive, he went somewhere. Now, here's a good debate. Where did he go? Some would think, well, if the spirits are in prison, if they are in hell, then he went to hell. Well, if that is the case, then this would be the only verse that says that. There are many views on this. But I'm not sure that that's quite right. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus was made alive, where did he go? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Even if you argue that this is about his burial, he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus was made alive, where did he go? He went to heaven. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And any time it talks about that verb, it talks about that verb, he went, Jesus went. Whenever it talks about him going somewhere, in Acts chapter 1, and in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, it always is talking about his ascension. So now, here is the victory. Let me get to the point. If, if you didn't understand anything of what I said, if I, I totally lost you, that's my fault, not yours. If I totally lost you in this whole discussion, let me summarize to you what I believe is happening here. And you mightn't believe it to be the case, but this is what I believe is happening here. Jesus suffered and died on the cross and bore our sins on the cross, on that tree. He rose again from the dead in victory. He went up to heaven 
And when he went up to heaven, from there he proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison, he proclaimed this one message, you lose. He proclaimed the victory. You lose. Because at that time, all of the demon world would have believed. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he's losing. Satan believed he could gain the victory. That's why he influenced Judas. They believe he is lost. But Jesus rose from the dead in order to proclaim to them, you lose. And that is the important thing I want you to take from these verses. Even if you got nothing of what I said this morning up until this point, hear this. Jesus rose from the dead and he proclaimed victory over sin and death. And what I want us to think about this morning is how do we proclaim that victory? I think we should continually proclaim that victory to one another. Because what happens is when we're suffering in our lives, we look at that small little box in the corner and we forget the bigger picture. We feel like we're losing all the time and we forget the bigger picture that Christ has won. And so here's what we need to do to our brothers and sisters. We need to remind each other, no, no, Christ has won. You might feel like I'm losing in my sin and we need to walk to each other and say, no, Christ has won. Christ has won the victory. You might feel like you're losing in your sin, but Christ has won the victory. We need to proclaim that to one another regularly. But I believe we need to also proclaim that to ourselves. Oftentimes when we feel most discouraged is actually when we are alone. Satan's name means that he is the accuser. So what is Satan going to do? His primary tactic in your life is going to be this. He is going to accuse you again and again and again. And what he will do is bring up past sins that you have been forgiven of and say, remember when you did that? Remember when you did this? There's no way you're a Christian. No way. He doesn't love you. How can he love you? And so the accuser comes with lie after lie after lie after lie. And it's in those moments that you need to declare with the words of Jesus, you lose. Christ has the victory. He rose from the grave. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison, you lose. Through his suffering, we have victory. Through his suffering, I am right with God. I may not feel like it, but I am right with God. Through his suffering, I can be brought to God. And through his suffering, he has proclaimed the victory. So we must do that with one another. We must do that with ourselves. When we are tempted by the fiery darts of the evil one, Christ has won. He has lost. Amen? Amen. And we also see this victory, not only in Christ's suffering and in Christ's proclamation, but we see this victory displayed and pictured in our baptism. In our baptism. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, as I read that verse, as I read uh, verse 21, I thought to myself, Peter, come on, give me a break. I mean, weren't, weren't verses 18, 19 and 20 hard enough? And then for some reason you have to go bring up baptism? And then I'm reminded of the words that Peter said about Paul's letters. Here's what Peter said about Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3.16. Peter said this about Paul's letters. There are some things in them, some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. To which I would say to Peter, Peter, there are some things in your letters that are hard to understand. In fact, I think Peter wins with these verses in that they are the most difficult, some of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. And then for some reason, he brings up baptism. And you think to yourself, where on earth did that come from? And what is he talking about when he says that that saves you? That doesn't make sense. We know in Romans that it cannot save you. It is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what on earth is he talking about? And is he contradicting himself from what he said in chapter 1? That, it was, that it was, you are being made born again by God? That it is God who makes you alive? What is he doing? Why is he bringing that up? What is he saying? Well, essentially, the only link between this and the verses before is that of water. There's two water stories. It's like this. He talked about the victory and the deliverance of the water story in the times of Noah. There was difficulty and persecution in, in their day. And, and so God saved them. It was the Lord's salvation in this water story. And so you have in, in, in this story, in the story of baptism. There's people suffering persecution and, and it is God who saves. And the picture of that salvation is your water story. And that's the link. But what we need to remember is this. It's very important that we remember this. Water is good for many things. Water is good for cooking and cleaning and washing. And water is good for drinking. But water is not good for saving. It is terrible at saving. And most of this country has got that fact wrong. Water doesn't do anything spiritually for you. It doesn't do anything spiritually for you. It doesn't make you holy. It doesn't cleanse you spiritually. Water doesn't do anything. And that is exactly why Peter clarifies himself straight away. And I'm glad he does. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Water itself doesn't do anything. But on your baptism day, what it was, was an appeal for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is not water that saves. It is the resurrection of Jesus that saves. And baptism is a picture of that. When you have believed in Christ, trusted him, asked him, asked him for the forgiveness of your sins, you're baptized as a picture of what? His death as you go down into the water and resurrection to new life. And it is on that day that not that that day saved you, but that day was not your salvation. That day was your identification with Jesus. 
I'm identifying with him. He is my Lord. He is my God. He has died. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And therein lies the victory that you proclaimed on the day of your baptism. And that's very helpful for us in terms of the victory that we've been talking about this morning. Because when it feels like you are losing in your faith, one of the great things I think you can do is bring your mind back to the day of your baptism. Because in the day of your baptism, that was when you were declaring publicly Christ's victory in your life. And it's such an important day to go back on. I was thinking to myself this week, how often do I think back about that day? And I'll confess with you, not very often. And I think we should. How good is it for the married couple to think back upon their marriage day? When they made those vows to one another, how important is that to remind yourself again and again of those vows that you made? So it is important for us to remember, yes, there was a day when Satan comes accusing, says, you're not really a Christian. Ah, you're, you're, you're only just saying that. You could go back to that day. You might remember the date of your salvation, but you might remember the date of your baptism. You can go back and say, no, there was a day. There was a day when I declared before everyone, yes, I am Christ's and he is mine. There was a day that you declared that victory. And so remember that. It will give you great encouragement. But can I also say this? Maybe this morning some of you don't have that day to look back on. You don't have that day of baptism or victory to look back on. And baptism is a command of Christ. Christ desired his people to repent of their sin, trust in him and be baptized in order to identify themselves with him and declare to the world that they are followers of Jesus Christ. And could I encourage you and urge you, if you are a believer in Jesus, you should identify with him. You should get baptized. You should declare that victory. You should picture before people. I'm one with Christ. I've died to the old self and I am made alive to the new self in Jesus Christ. It was not water that saved me. It was Christ that saved me. Water doesn't do anything. Christ does everything. Through his death, his burial and resurrection. How dare we use his very creation to replace his salvation? We use bells and whistles and water and all sorts of stuff. No. It's Christ. It's all about him. I know I'm like a broken record in these things, but it's all about him. Why do we get confused? Why do we make it about all sorts of other things? It's all about Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what we're declaring in our baptism. So if you guys want to think about that a little bit more, and any of you would like to talk about getting baptized, I would love to talk with you or or Brendan might be able to talk with you as well. I'd urge you to do that. This is part of the proclamation of our victory. 
And so when we think of Christ's victory, we think of his, his suffering, we think of his proclamation, we think of his, our baptism, but, but there's also something else we need to think about. And when I think people look at Jesus' life, sometimes we focus on victory in different areas of Jesus' life. We focus on, 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 on Jesus' birth, or we focus on Jesus' life, and we should, or we focus primarily, mainly on Jesus' death for us on the cross. Or then we focus in Easter, on Easter Sunday, on, on Jesus' resurrection. But often what happens in victory is we stop there. We think as long as we've covered Jesus' birth, his life, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, there we have it, that's his victory, but we miss something. If we stop the story there, we miss something so incredibly important. What is it? It's it's one of the main things. His ascension. He went up and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And if you miss that part of the story... You miss the entire victory. Here's the thing about human beings. Human beings love a good victory story. They love a good victory story. This is why we we love to celebrate victories. When someone wins a match, when someone scores a goal, when someone wins a game or event, we love victories. Can you imagine how boring life would be if nobody won anything? Imagine how boring that would be. If no one won anything, life would be boring. We're made to celebrate victory. The problem is we get so consumed with all the victories on this earth. Made to celebrate victory. But you know, one of the greatest victories, one of the greatest victories that I love celebrating is not when the person that you expect to win wins. It is when the one who is the underdog wins. And they walk up and they, they stand upon that podium in first place and everybody's cheering and focused upon them and, and standing and awe and wondering to themselves and, and looking at each other and saying, how on earth did that happen? How did they win? And so it is with Christ. The Jews thought they won when he was nailed to the cross. The soldiers thought they won when he was nailed to the cross. That's him over. Judas thought he had won when he was nailed to the cross. Here I have my money. The demons in prison thought they had won when he was nailed to the cross. (laughs) He put us in prison. Look at him now. Satan thought he had won when they nailed him to the cross. But on the third day, (laughs) on the third day, Jesus rose again on the third day. And after that, he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father and he said, you lose. And this is exactly what the last verses say in our passage. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God 
with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. His throne is his victory seat. And all the angels and all the powers and all the authorities and every single one in creation looks around at themselves and say, how on earth did he do that? (laughs) The power of God, the victory of Christ for you and for me. Live in victory. Christ has won the victory. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. His job is done. He has won. So, brothers and sisters, the next time that phone rings, don't look at that small box in the corner. Look to him. (laughs) Look at the big picture. He has won the victory for you and me. All the evil powers, we can say, you lose because of what Christ has done. I want us to celebrate this victory right now by singing together. Come behold the wondrous mystery. And in in these verses, it says, has a phrase that says, hangs the lamb in victory on the cross. He hung. victory. So let's sing that together and we'll have some comments and reflections afterwards. Let's sing Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.